Let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear. She made her first attempt at Coca Coca <laughs> I can't say it. Thank you. She went to the beach. It's the Clear as Mud podcast, where we look at the funny and not so funny sides of bad communication. Join us as we ask why is it so hard to get your message across? Take it away, Lawrence and Ray. Welcome to episode 12 of the Clear as Mud podcast. Ray, have you seen the Netflix movie, Stranger Things? I just finished uh, the fourth series, binge watching as usual. Yeah, yeah, we uh, binge watched it too. That show has a lot of uh, resonance for me because it takes place in Indiana in the 1980s and I grew up at about the same time in Ohio, which is the state right next door especially things like the wood paneling on the lounge rooms and the station wagons, all that kind of stuff brings back memories. Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? There is a prominent uh, scene which uh, played the music of Kate Bush, the Australian songstress, the, the singer. Mm -hmm. Now, the curious thing is that, that this song debuted in 1985 called Running Up That Hill, uh, now, it wasn't a success then, but 37 years ago, but it is now. In fact, it is number one, the U.S. Um, Apple iTunes download. Wow. It's the number one uh, on the Arias Singles Chart, number one on Spotify Australia Chart, number two on Spotify Global Chart, number one on the Apple Music Australian Chart, number two on the Apple Music Global Chart, number two on YouTube Music Videos Australian chart and number eight uh, in the UK chart. So it's, it's, yeah, it's quite amazing, right? So this this song came out, you know, 37 years ago. And, and, and I was just thinking, why does it work? And and you watch the show, the show as well. I think it works because, number one, it is a hit movie, right? With worldwide reach, with massive audience, even if a small percentage of that audience, you know, pay attention to your song and download, you're more likely to succeed. So number two, it fits into the scene uh, very well. So, so in that particular scene, uh, the character Max Mayfield in series four, um, episode four, had to run away from the monster through a hillscape of you know falling debris uh, towards the people she loved. So the words and the lyrics sort of fit the scene very well. And of course, there's always this tension uh, throughout the scene mm, whether mm. you know whether the monster will actually get to her. So the music actually helped enhance the emotion so both the audio and the visual and you know, play on each other and it's very well crafted so what do you think of this this um, coincidence ray yes that's uh, that's a really interesting one lawrence I, I think if you didn't know that it was actually a song from the 80s you might think it was written for the show because it seems to fit the scene so well and i always like mm. that when filmmakers are able to find an existing song that fits really well with whatever it is that they're uh, they're trying to uh, portray and i think this concept what you're talking about here it fits the theme of the podcast uh, because i really think music is an incredibly powerful way to get us to feel a particular emotion even if we don't realize it or don't want to, and then we do something with that feeling. So that makes me think, you know, I think we're going to have to get somebody on the podcast soon to talk to us about how music 
is used in a clear as mud way to change our behavior, you know, whether that's to, I don't know, cry in a movie or get us to buy more stuff. So that's a note to self. Find a music expert. All right, let's move on to this week's The Good, The Bad, and The Hilarious. I have a good example this week. Now, this was announced a few weeks ago, but I only just became aware of this uh, the other day. Now, in the UK, the Ogilvy ad agency has announced that it will no longer work with influencers who distort or retouch their bodies or faces for brand campaigns. And they're doing this in what they call a bid to combat social media's systemic mental health harms. In an interview with The Drum, we'll provide a link in the show notes, uh, Ogilvy's head of influence, Rahul Titus, there's, there's a title for you, I'm the head of influence. <laughs> I love it. But anyway, so Rahul Titus, he said influencer marketing is, quote, supposed to be the authentic side to marketing, but now it churns out such staged content that it is so harmful to anybody looking at social media. Right on, I say. Now, the reason why Ogilvy is doing this in the UK at the moment is because the UK government is currently reviewing what's called the Digitally Altered Body Image Bill. And again, now there's a name for a bill. The Digitally Altered Body Image Bill. Now, that would require an influencer to disclose whether their content is edited or not. The bill's on its second review in Parliament, but it's struggling to make it through the proposal process. Ogilvy hopes its commitment to stop working with influencers who alter their images will help get the bill passed. Now, some big brands over there, including Dove, which of course has been campaigning on body image issues for a number of years, have come out supporting Ogilvy's decision. Now, apparently, Ogilvy has a piece of technology called Influence O. There's another title. <laughs> I don't know. This is just full of them. Uh, in this Influence O, will detect whether somebody is using body modification filters on their posts. Uh, Raul Titus for, said further, we're talking about reversing 10 years of social media behavior, and that's not going to happen in two months. Now, we know what we're putting in place won't see immediate benefits from, and it'll be at least five years, and that's too big a project, and that's okay. I think this is a huge step in the right direction for influencer marketing, Lawrence, but call me cynical, but I just think that uh, they may struggle to find influencers who don't edit their appearance. Now, what do you think, Lawrence? Do you think this will lead to more honesty in influencer marketing, or are they going to find a way around this? I think they will try, but I think this is a big step forward, Ray. And if that technology actually works, you know, that influence all, where somehow they can, you know, detect if there are changes, I think, I think you know, they will fall in line because if the agency as big as Ogilvy would just say, you know, we will not, you know, hire anybody, other agencies would follow. 
And I think it would have a cascading uh, effect through the industry, uh, so-called industry, I guess. Yeah, so I, I think I'm more optimistic than Rahu and yourself because I think, I think it will work. I think if, if, they, if the technology works and if they can't find a way around it, you know, and <laughs> trust me, influencers are not that technically sophisticated unless they have some expert like deep fake or something, somebody with deep fake technology, but then they cannot endorse products that way anyway. So, so yeah, so I think, I, I think I'm optimistic. I think it will work actually. Yeah. And uh, let's face it, you know, Facebook, Meta or whatever, they're not going to do this. So uh, outside of government regulations, I think it's up to industry to demand that these sort of changes uh, be made. And yeah, hopefully it'll work out. Okay, Ray, I've got a very bad one this week. Now, it's, it's about your favorite uh, politician, uh, Donald Trump, the one and only. How could we have an episode of this podcast without talking about the Donald, really? I know, I know. And my, my wife was saying, gee, Donald Trump seems to be giving and giving, isn't it, to your podcast, huh? You know, he's he's a he's the gift that keeps giving, isn't that the phrase, Ray? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, guess what? There's a, um, a Congress uh, congressional investigation right now. Now, this time it, it is about his unwillingness to give up the U.S. presidency, even after he lost the election, and in, even after he has been advised by his own people, including his own daughter, Ivanka, as well as his attorney general that he had lost and he should concede and leave the White House. Now, and he refused to do that, right? Now, it's interesting to compare his behavior with the recent election in Australia, where the previous prime minister uh, of Australia, Scott Morrison, now he lost the election, he conceded and he left, you know, the residence the next day. So what exactly did Donald Trump do? Well, he essentially tried to stage a coup using various instruments or tactics. And when one failed, he then tries another and so forth, right? So this uh, congressional investigation underway now is to try to determine whether Trump had any criminal intent on his part in doing those. So there's, there's no doubt he actually did all this. But the question is whether he you know, did this intentionally and with corruption, I guess. So, of course, the culmination is is on January the 6th last year. Now, that date, January the 6th, is very important because that's the date in which the Congress, uh, including the Vice President, uh, Mike Pence, has to formally certify that Biden had won the election, right? So it's largely a formality, right? It's largely a formality, but 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 for Donald Trump, he represented a last mm. ditch effort, you know, to overturn the results. Right? So on that day, he he tweeted, you know, we will never give up, we will never concede. It doesn't happen. We won't concede uh, when there is theft as well. So there was a you know a roaring um, applause from his from his supporters. Now he even tweeted, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and constitution. USA demands the truth. That's a really good imitation, Lawrence. You sound just like him. Uh, now, the worst thing is that the, his, supporters, his supporters actually believe him and decided to uh, storm Capitol Hill. Uh, so the mob uh, was about 2,000 rioters and five got killed, including an officer. Many more got injured, including 138 policemen. Now, the, the, the mobster, you know, in their defense said, no, we are doing it because Trump told us to do it. 
and that it is the right thing to do because they, they believe that the election was stolen. Now, these people were arrested and you were punished and then 800 people were prosecuted. So this is the question, you know, what should you do with Trump? What happens to Trump right now? So there's an inquiry now, as I said, so the, the committee is made up of nine people. The key question is, does Trump really believe that he had lost the election and willfully ignored the fact and acted corruptly to overturn the ruling? So in other words, they are saying, you know, did he actually believe that he actually lost, but still, having believed that, still acted corruptly by asking the department to send a letter saying the election was fraud and, and, and then do nothing to stop it. But first, the committee has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Mr. Trump secretly knew that he had lost the election and acted corruptly. Now, note that the, the, this committee you know, does not have the power to prosecute. It is the, the attorney general's decision. Now, this is where you know, it gets, gets a bit funny, I think. The last time this happened was when Richard Nixon uh, was impeached, but he was never indicted. Uh, in fact, he was pardoned by the next US president, Gerald Ford. And once uh, Nixon was pardoned, he cannot be indicted. So this is the thing, Ray. Um, nobody, no presidents in the past or present has ever been indicted. Indicted. So what's the probability of this happening right now? Okay. The, the fear though is that if nothing is done, Trump might be back to run for the presidency in 2024, which is in about two years time. And guess what? He will still have the support of the Republicans, many believing that in fact, <laughs> the election was stolen. So God help us, Ray. Mm, indeed, indeed. I think it's time to invoke God for something like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I find it appropriate that all this is happening at the same time as the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, and I think we might be talking about that in a uh, future episode. <laughs> Look, I mean, this, you know, as I've said before, this isn't a political podcast, but you can't have a podcast about clear as mud communication without talking about Trump. I mean, I think you look up the phrase clear as mud communication in the dictionary, there's a picture of Trump. And this is a perfect example of him saying one thing and then denying it completely um, later. And I might take some flack on this from the one or two of our listeners who are in the U.S. Hi, Mom. But I think if the U.S. government isn't able to find the will to indict Trump after all of this evidence is supplied, I think it's time to hand in my U.S. passport. Millions of people have been taken in by this con man who, as I said, personifies the concept of clear as mud communication. He's told big lies for years and years and he ended up being rewarded with the job of the leader of the free world. Mm. And he used that job to benefit his business interests and his family. Now, maybe, maybe now enough people will be able to see through that. But one thing I'm going to do, I think I'm going to buy a Liz Cheney t-shirt. Now, to finish up for this episode, I've got a hilarious example from the ABC TV show, The Weekly with Charlie Pickering. They've engaged former movie reviewer Margaret Pomerantz to produce satirical reviews of Australian TV shows. We included a link to her hilarious review of the influencer reality show Byron Bay's a couple of weeks ago. 
Now she's done a review of another Australian reality show, Lux Listing Sydney, and she's managed to find a group of people even more self-obsessed and unaware than Byron Bay influencers. And we're talking about real estate agents. We'll include a link to the full review. It only goes for a couple of minutes in the show notes, but it contains such zingers as saying that the show's eastern suburbs real estate agents are subverting reputations as conniving, backstabbing scum that you wouldn't piss on if they were on fire. Hmm. And who knew that every luxury house these days needs at least one cheese room? Lawrence, you sold your house recently. Did you have a cheese room? No, but but this is the first time I've heard uh, a house having a cheese room. Gee, you know, you must love your cheese. Or you might be breeding lots of mice, Ray. Ah, yes. As always, please send through your own suggestions to the good, the bad, and the hilarious at clear-as-mud.org. Life is much more complicated for young people making their way in the world today. Back in the age of the dinosaurs in the last millennium, you used to have a job for life. You just did your work, kept your head down, and if you were ambitious, over time you would rise up to management or leadership in that organization or a similar one. You might get involved in internal politics in order to boost your status, but no one outside your organization ever saw that. Then you'd go home, you'd spend your spare time watching TV or pursuing a hobby. But now, if LinkedIn and Instagram are any indication, everyone has to have a brand, a personality, has to stand for something. We're constantly trumpeting our accomplishments to increase the odds that our name comes up when a corporate recruiter looks for a job candidate, and we base our self-esteem on the number of likes and followers we have on social media. Our spare time, meanwhile, is spent pursuing a side hustle, such as a podcast, or polishing our image online, or increasingly, making a living from our online brand. How did that happen? What's changed? How is the line blurred between our personal and professional lives? And what if we don't want a personal brand? To help us explore the muddy waters of self-branding, we've invited our friend Dr. Susie Camus to speak with us. Susie is Associate Dean International at the University of Technology, Sydney, and is a researcher in public communications. Her doctoral thesis, Bushels and the Cultural Logic of Branding, won the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Heritage Prize. She was also the founding editor of Locale, the Australasian Pacific Journal of Regional Food Studies. Susie has published widely in the areas of branding, representations of cultural diversity in consumer cultures. Her current research focuses on how successful global brands represent cultural diversity in their marketing media. I said earlier, our friend Susie, because the three of us have worked together over the past few years. Susie helped develop the Bachelor of Marketing and Media program when she was at Macquarie University in conjunction with Lawrence. And the three of us used to co-teach the capstone unit for that degree. 
Susie has also published research on self-branding and micro-celebrities, including a co-authored piece with Lawrence and me. And that's the topic that we're going to be focusing on today. Susie, welcome. Hi, Ray. Hi, Lawrence. Let's get stuck into our self-branding chat. So first off, Susie, why are we seeing the rise of personal branding or self-branding? Yeah, great question, Ray. Um, I think it speaks to the power dynamics that are at play in contemporary media. Um, and when I say contemporary media, I really mean uh, the kind of digital media that has been in play for the last 10 years or so, which has really redistributed the, um, the power in terms of who gets to make media, make content, you know, gone are the days where our media ecosystem was controlled and patrolled by gatekeepers like editors and, you know, broadcasters with deep pockets and the traditional sort of, you know, bastions of, of what we would now consider legacy media. These days, to have a smartphone is to be connected and to have a social media presence is to have a profile and to have a profile furnishes you with, I suppose, the, the means by which you can develop a personal brand. And... How did all of this start or, or when did the big change start to happen? What sort of things happened? I think, you know, if we're talking about people using social media to articulate a, a point of view, a presence, a, a singular identity in the world, well, really that's been around really since the early days of the internet and the early days of just even what we would now consider very rudimentary um, digital media where you could talk to people on the other side of the world in, in real time, people that you would never meet in real life, so to speak, but with whom you can develop some kind of connection or affinity or relationship. If we're talking about the kind of social media celebrity that we now associate with influencers, that's a little bit more recent and probably really started with things like, you know, way back with MySpace and accelerated with Facebook and really came to the fore and center with, with Instagram. So, you know, the, the basics of building a personal brand online have really been happening for well over a decade. But to the extent that we're seeing it now, where virtual nobodies are becoming multimillionaires in the space of, you know, a few months or years, that's, that's a slightly more recent development. Yeah. What part do you think politics has had in this? Like, you know, this, the, I guess I'm thinking here of neoliberal politics and, you know, the cult of the individual and so, and how that plays into this concept of people needing to do more of their own thing, I guess, rather than just be a worker bee. Well, I would not say that propensity to go online, develop a personal brand, articulate a point of view and develop a, a following of sorts. I don't think, you know, capitalism or nihilism has a monopoly on that, pardon the pun. Um, but I do think that to the extent that, let's say, consumer capitalism rewards and celebrates individuals that, you know, stand out and that can project what you might consider an aspirational or inspirational story or lifestyle, well, then there's a nice simpatico between, you know, a culture where, you know, that kind of, I suppose, success, material success is 
seen as some kind of validation of worth and to the extent that you know social media profiles can tell a story of you know seeming or apparent perfection well then there is obviously a, a you know an affinity there but I should you know I should also point out that in terms of who's online and, and you know projecting a particular point of view or stance or developing the following well then you know it kind of spans the political spectrum so as we know as we know quite acutely from far left to the far right and all and sundry in between all now pretty much have a seat at the social media table and all have developed strong sizable followings that can speaking of politics can literally move move elections can literally determine the fate of our so-called you know real politicians so you know i think what, what does politics have to do with it well the basic cultural economic infrastructure obviously plays into the logic language and and the rhythm of consumer capitalism but that's not to say that it's only budding capitalists or entrepreneurs that are making maximum use of of social media to build personal brands mm, yeah okay and what about the role of technology? I mean, you know, we've talked, you've talked a bit already about social media, but was something like this going to happen anyway, or is it really, are we only in this position because we now have this a technology that allows us to express ourselves uh, more fully? Well, you know, when we speak of any kind of media technology, we, we need to look at it, its affordances and its functionalities, its its capacities, its limitations, and also the means by which use of that medium or technology is controlled or distributed. So, you know, insofar as, let's say, legacy media was more or less controlled by a handful of press barons or, you know, networks or the big studios, then it was always going to be a relatively closed shop, you know, pretty much inhospitable or prohibitive by virtue of its cost to, to anyone else. But to the extent that things like smartphones are becoming cheaper, more prevalent and more sophisticated, and insofar as these amazing devices, uh, you know, are literally within people's, the palm of people's hands on a scale that's you know unprecedented then the technology is it goes a long way in explaining how this became so intense so quickly you know there are parts of India where more people have got access to a smartphone than an indoor toilet when you kind of contemplate that 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 kind of breadth of coverage little wonder then that we're seeing this unbelievable you know it's I wouldn't even say revolution it's like you know several revolutions layered revolutions all happening you know frenetically all over the world so technology goes very far you know it's back in the day you know if, if let's say I, I didn't have immediate or direct access or employment in any of the legacy media and let's say I wanted to publish a little fanzine or a little pamphlet or something I mean you know it wouldn't take long for the price of ink to bankrupt me you know just by virtue of how much I'd need to print to, to get anything like mass circulation and nowadays one little succinct tweet tweet can can shift an election this way or that a very arresting or memorable Instagram feed can get the attention of an uber popular or famous photographer for example who will reach out and say hey you're okay you know let's work together or you know if I was an amateur singer maybe I don't have to play the 
the circuit, the gig circuit. I can just release something amazing on say YouTube and develop a profile slowly that way. So technology is incredibly important in understanding how it is that we're speaking about this. It's, it goes very far. Uh, how do you think this increased emphasis on self, which then expresses itself as self-branding, how has this affected society? positively and negatively <laughs> there are so many ways to approach that question you don't even have to wait for you know a media expert I mean I, I, you know my my familiarity with Freud and the ego is way for thin but I, you know I think even an amateur psychologist would tell you that anything which allows us to express an idealized version of ourselves is is going to you know, we can we can create what do they call it now? Curating. I can I can curate what elements of my life I want to. I, d I don't do this by the way, but I could. I could curate what elements of my life I wanted to piece together to tell a story about me. And if that's all you see or know of me, well, then it's it's quite possible that you would develop you know a perception of me that is. I suppose partly true, but certainly not completely true. When, when I used to first start teaching this subject or you know this topic to students, and I'd ask them who who presents to the world an idealized version of themselves, and they're like, no, 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 we don't do that. We don't, you know, we're not fake. And I'd say, okay, well, hands up. This was back when Facebook was a thing, and I'd be like, okay, hands up if you've ever checked into like a fancy restaurant, you know, when you've dined out, and everybody will put it, put up their hand up. And I said, okay, well, hands up if you've ever checked in when you've gone to eat at McDonald's and no one puts their hand up. And I said, well, okay, let me just ask you, who has been to McDonald's recently? Everyone puts their hand up. I'm like, aha. Okay, so which parts of that, you know, both those, those food stories equal the truth of what you eat and yet only one ends up on your Facebook feed. And so... It's fair of me to assume, if that's all I see, someone checking into these fancy places, it's fair of me to assume, wow, they must live such a fancy, you know, la-di-da life. I wish I lived like that. And so, you know, there's, it's not so much, I don't think anybody would kind of recognize themselves as being super egotistical and, or narcissistic or contriving a version of their life that's not true. But at the same time, most people choose not to document everything they do, see, eat, read. And, and yet, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the reality of ourselves, then it's, it's, all, it's all, you know, good, bad, ugly. And not everything ends up on the stories that we tell the world about ourselves. So I think, you know, ego or, you know, our, our, what is it, living your best life? Well, I, I think some people make decisions to make sure that only the aspects of their best lives get, you know, get, broadcast or released so i guess in a way as you say we're like you know it's like we're the star of our own little movie so one of the things that is related to that is this concept of micro celebrity which as you know we wrote about in our research but can you talk a little bit about the relationship between self-branding and micro celebrity and how this has made us i don't know maybe changed our relationship with with bigger celebrities, you know, yeah. now that we can behave like a celebrity? I mean, it's a technical term, really, or a very academic term that really get pops up in, in popular press or popular media. But, um, you know, Teresa Schent, uh, you know, came up with this term micro-celebrity to capture the strategy, strategies by which 
social media users develop a relationship with an audience or followers using the affordances of social media and developing what seems like a kind of connection with an audience which brings them close but also you know, creates a pattern of authenticity so unlike the old school or old style celebrities like George Clooney or Richard Gere or Brad Pitt or I'm, you know I'm clearly dating myself here or Harry Styles um, you know these that's okay we've heard of them yeah, these, these, these celebrities that we don't ever you know we kind of know live these lives that are so distant and different from our from our own certainly the early days of social media influencers you know a lot of their their growth and their their following and popularity was premised on a perception of authenticity in other words unlike old school celebrities whose image was often crafted by studios or pr machines and whose image is almost always filtered through this thick web of advertising and spin and, and media the micro celebrities were different insofar as they seemed a little bit more accessible authentic and real and and certainly you know a few years ago and i guess you know even to this day those that develop a really strong bond between between their online persona and you know ordinary people if you read the, the exchanges say on on insta they, they do talk to them as if they're friends, as if, you know, the people that follow them and like them. And, and so there's a, the nature of the relationship is very different. If I was, let's say, if I was to send anything to, um, I'm trying to think of who's a really big star right now. Who's a really big star that doesn't make me sound like I'm 100 years old? If I was to send an email, right, to Bruce Springsteen, oh my God, <laughs> if anyone <laughs> I'm just trying He's to think even someone, older than us. I'm just trying to think of someone that's really big, someone that's like huge. Who's huge? If I was to say, I love Madonna, if I was to send, you know, an email or to Madonna, right, and I was to receive anything in return, I wouldn't for a nanosecond think that she actually replied. I would kind of assume that she has an army of assistants that deal with all this. <clears throat> and yet with influencers, if you go on their feeds and you leave a note, they very often will reply. And, and I think that that immediacy and that direct access changes the the nature of the relationship between the fan and the object of that that admiration mm. but do you think that people become micro celebrities just because they're you know passionate about whatever their uh, topic is or do they want to turn it into a career do they want to become a celebrity both and and this is why i wouldn't try to you know universalize social media celebrities or influencers or micro celebrities because i i don't think you can put them all in the same basket and say right well clearly they all wanted to be you know the next big thing because some clearly have tried to contrive a particular image persona following with a view to commercialize that commodify that merchandise that there's that but at the same time we know there are people of influence whose presence and salience is a result of something other or bigger or different. Um, I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind to my mind, I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg, who is a huge, she's a youth quake phenomenon, a massive social media magnet, right? But her protest and her advocacy for government action on, on climate 
began as something very old school, old fashioned, like, you know, just a very old school strike from school. She did not set out to become a celebrity, but clearly her, her strategies attracted social media attention. And before you know it, she has generated all these crowd cultures around the world, you know, young people like herself, to sort of see in her advocacy the story that they want told about climate. And she has clearly managed to convert that school strike into a social media phenomenon. In turn, literally protests and advocacy around the world. I would not call her a social media influencer like some other, let's say, fitness influencers who are clearly trying to brand their workout regimes, who are clearly trying to commodify their name to put it on a brand of, say, protein powder or T-shirts or gym bags or whatever. Here's the thing. Both are using social media to further something, but both are leveraging the power, the cachet of a name for a cause, but they're, they're very different agendas. They're very different objectives. And so I think it's inevitable that in 2022, anybody that wants to have a voice, a presence, a say, develop some kind of online online presence and cut through. I think that's inevitable. I think that's like, if it was 1985, we'd be like, okay, well, obviously they're going to want to get on TV because that's how you reach a lot of people. Uh, well, the dynamics are different now. The technologies are different. So I, I don't think... I don't think all influencers start out with the same view to celebrity or commodification or commerce. Now, what happens when, if for these ones who do want to, you know, build their brand, I guess, commercially, what happens when they move from micro-celebrity to, dare I say it, celebrity? I mean, I'm not sure whether you'd call somebody a celebrity who's only built their presence online. But I'm thinking of people like, say, for example, you know, you mentioned these fitness uh, influencers, you know, people that uh, my students write papers about, like Kayleigh Sinis and Tammy Hembrow and all that. And then suddenly they've got, you know, 20 million followers and they're, you know, buying up half of the Gold Coast suburbs and, and that sort of thing. What? How does that transition work I guess from like what you know what changes when they go through that growth that they're hoping to get well effectively if there is a genuine growth effectively what they've done is parlay the following and profile they developed online towards more mainstream coverage and exposure as long as they are just working say the social media scenes then their, their celebrity, their name will, will be tied to what might be sizable followings. Let's say 20 million, right? Or let's say 16 million. In all likelihood, that 16 million is probably dispersed around the world. They probably share a, a demographic of sorts. But until they sort of move more mainstream, it's still going to be fairly boutique or niche. And that might sound counterintuitive when we're talking numbers like 16 million. But I know categorically that when, you know, often I will read or see something about an influencer that I've never heard of. And if I have a look at their, their Insta feed and I say they've got 20 million followers and I think, okay, but I wasn't one of them and I'd never heard of them. So it, it's a sense of, it gives you some kind of perspective, but also you've got to realize that, that that 20 million doesn't necessarily share a particular 
geographical or even temporal space. So if they want to make that leap and, and kind of, you know, have that more mainstream presence, then they would have to find some kind of visibility or presence. Or they might not, you know, the, the numbers, the money might be fine doing what they're doing where they are. It's funny because, I mean, last night I, I watched, and I do this as a, just as more of a bit of a media scholar, but also as a just an old-fashioned person, I watched the TV Week Logie Awards. And for anyone that doesn't know, the, the Logies, are, it's like our Emmys or it's like our television, you know, awards night. And the, the names that were the people that were on the stage, it was kind of split between the reality TV stars, the influencers, and those who had developed their celebrity the old-fashioned way, you know, from the 80s and 90s and, and big TV shows from then. And I'm pretty sure that you know, every time I thought to myself, who is that person? Uh, I'd, have, I'd pretty much, I reckon a lot of people would have said the same thing, you know, who is that person? Whereas people <coughs> of a particular age or who follow a particular kind of genre on, you know, on social, they'd know who they are. Now, if we were to rewind to like 1987, Every single person that came out on that stage would be known to everybody, because it was a completely different media ecosystem, and we didn't and we didn't have a chance to really fragment in our little kind of online sort of bubbles and and, and silos. And pretty much all media was mass media, unless we were talking super fringe or super indie. And so you know, to to kind of have that recognition, that name, some of them would want that for things like sponsorship. Others might not. Some brands, you know, I'm thinking of the brand sponsorship that comes along once you have a particular statue, stature or, or, um, or, you know, recognition. And maybe if they want to get a super big brand deal. But having said that, I've also noticed that a lot of big brands are now partnering with, with influencers and are happy to speak directly to a particular niche demographic rather than, you know, try to reach everyone all the time. Yeah, that's one thing we haven't talked about is micro-influencers. You know, so from a, a corporate branding perspective, do you think that being able to access those niche audiences makes influencers more effective than advertising can be? Quite possibly. I mean, the thing with, yeah, and this is, this is what can make influencers, micro-celebrities, brand goal because the relationship they have with their audience or their followers is often quite intense and also audiences now have choice and you know we can very easily unfollow somebody or you know so generally the online stars that we choose to stick with we do so because even within that context of you know extreme choice they speak to us in a particular way and once the ultimate goal for any brand is to develop a relationship with the consumer and if those micro celebrities or influencers already have that kind of quasi relationship well then it's quite attractive for a brand to piggyback on that and and, and get you know so there's an intensity there that you don't necessarily get on a 30 second tvc with you know nameless models or or whatever so they can be extremely attractive to to brand sponsors who want in on that intensity of, um, of the relationship. And also, just by virtue of the kind of data that can be gleaned from these relationships, the, the specificity or the granularity of that consumer data, those insights, are unbelievably reliable and, and valuable to advertisers or brands. And you don't necessarily capture that in traditional advertising 
So there is so much to recommend social media influencers to, to brand sponsorship. Okay, let's flip that around. We've been talking quite a bit about people who want to make a living out of, out of their brand. What about those of us, you know, the millions of us out there that spend our spare time updating our LinkedIn or, or starting a, an Instagram about a, a hobby or something like that? I guess what I'm trying to get at is we never used to have that pressure on us to build this personal brand. And now, it, it, to me, it feels like it's unavoidable. So if people are not that keen on self-promotion, if you like, how do they function professionally in this world in which we live today? I mean, if we, I mean, if we just strip the concept back to the basics, I mean, what is a brand other than some kind of mark of distinction or some kind of singular feature that sets you apart from the next person or, you know, and that's, I think that's as, as true, you know, for a person as a pair of sneakers. I mean, let's just say, let's just pretend the concept of self-branding didn't exist and you meet someone for the first time and then the next time you meet them, you, you know, or when you try to remember them, you we generally remember things that stood out, whether it's the color of their hair or what they were wearing or something interesting that they said. Or, I mean, there's, you know, you don't think, oh, who was that human? Who was that person with a voice and, you know, four limbs? You think, okay, we kind of, our, our memory bank goes straight to what stood out. And if, you know, if we don't remember them at all, then probably nothing stood out. And for whatever reason, they didn't make an impression. So anyone or anything that makes an impression, it's usually by virtue of some, some distinguishing mark or feature. So you can say, oh, look, I didn't, I didn't try to create a brand and that's not something I'm interested in. Okay, but if, if there is something distinguishing or different or remarkable about you, then whether or not you want it, you're going to be remembered and it will be, you know, be a kind of de facto brand. And so I think, you know, I, I think really and ironically, you know, that's often people with the most singular, the most memorable, the most effective personal brands it's not something that they've necessarily contrived or have gone for it's because they are genuinely different they are genuinely like one out of the what's the what's the expression out of the box or whatever I'm, you know who i'm thinking of as i say this i'm thinking of um fran Libovitz, the um, new york-based writer and and wit um who has been around literally for decades i mean she was talk about old school she she used to do columns for Interview magazine, the um, the old Andy Warhol's magazine back in the day. Um, wow. And who's recently, she seems to have had like this new lease of celebrity. Um, there was a Netflix documentary on her hosted by, or, you know, um, uh, narrated by Martin, Martin Scorsese and she's on book tours again. Now, the reason I think this is so ironic is because she doesn't even have a social media profile. She doesn't use the internet, she's famously averse to anything that's kind of too fancy or new or whatever. And in terms of personal brand, you know, she's such an iconic singular presence and image, right? She has a particular way of speaking, dressing, her observations of, of modern life are so are so her, right? She, she's got this way of answering questions that no one else can do. Now, ironically, you know, if we're going to talk personal brands, you know, hers is so emphatically hers. It's it's so singular. If you could commodify that, there's it'd be priceless. 
And really that's what a personal brand is. It's it's your promise of difference to the world. Like this is what makes me different. This is look at me, listen to me, I'm different. She doesn't say this, of course. She doesn't have to because she is already different. So whenever anyone tries to cultivate a personal brand, it, you know, the first thing they need to do is, well, how am I different to the, to, the, to the next guy? Like how am I different to the next schmuck that is trying to sell a fitness regime or a fashion line or, you know, home cooking or whatever it is because, you know, these are some of the most prevalent genres on on social and so if you're going to go there you really have to be honest and i think and now if, you, if you're trying to do this in 2010 like you probably didn't have to be that awesome i think trying to do it in, in 2022 you really would need a special kind of something because it's a crowded marketplace all right so where do you see this whole trend about self-branding going in the future. You know, for example, with all the research that supports the anecdotal belief that social media's focus on me, me, me is harmful to our mental health, is there a backlash on the cards or what? Um, as a, as a non-psychologist and a, a non-sort of, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a researcher of the brain and or of learning or pedagogy or anything like that. So I actually can't speak directly to those links, which I have read about, but I'm not an expert on, those links between social media use or narcissism or, I mean, I, I, we are learning more about literally the kind of damage that that kind of social media use dependence that the Google brain that we're all developing where, you know, you, we've stopped learning stuff and that we just now find, you know, the answer. Anyway. Just go look it up. Yeah, I won't. I won't speak directly to that, right? But as a media scholar and a media researcher, I am choosing to be an optimist, and I'm reaching for a, a a truism or a maxim that's been around forever, and I'm hoping that it's still true. And that that maxim is content is king. And excuse the gendered language, but effectively, you know, what that speaks to is this belief that. No matter the medium, no matter the technology, no matter the money that went into crafting the message, if it's if it's brilliant, if it's important, if it's wonderfully conceived or designed or articulated, it will find its audience. And even if that starts off as a tiny audience, they will carry it to a bigger audience, you know, the law of the few, the power of the few. Um, I'm choosing to hang on to that because... You know, sometimes we see it in action when, you know, something small but important goes viral, you know, because the right people noticed it. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that that is still true. Like, I'm hoping that content is still king. Only because I believe in the power of words and the power of brilliant ideas and I would like to think that we continue to make room and time and space for them and I don't think they necessarily come... I, they rarely originate on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I hope they get shared on, on that media, but they really originate there. So that's kind of my sort of, sorry, it's a bit ambivalent or it's a bit sort of ambiguous, but it's almost like I'm hoping for for that. Yeah, I hope you're right. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. Played a devil's advocate here since uh, you mentioned, you know, about the media and stuff what do you how do you feel about certain programs that 
exploit celebrities or exploit micro celebrities or exploit ordinary people who want to be celebrities. So, so I'm talking about programs like you know Master Chef or programs like Survivors and so forth. Now that's the intersection where you have a person or people who wants to be famous, who wants to brand themselves, and then you have media. I think I get the gist of what Lawrence's question. Um, you know, Lawrence, you used a real, a really loaded term, which is exploit. And I could get, I could get all Marxist on you and, and say, look, some would argue that in any kind of capitalist system, we're all kind of on a spec, some kind of spectrum or treadmill of exploitation. But what I will say about, you know, and reality TV actually predates social media, but in many ways, it kind of sowed the seeds of, of what we now see playing out online, which is so-called ordinary people developing some kind of stardom. And, and yeah, absolutely, you know, there, there is a genre of media that trades on that desire for people to have that attention. But what I would say to you, or, you know, my response to that is, I think as a culture, every generation has its circuit for exposure for cadetship in celebrity. So, for example, some of the biggest selling recording artists today were so-called discovered um, on, say, American Idol or Australian Idol or The Voice um, or Britain's Got Talent. And 20 years ago, they would have had to have maybe done the, the gig circuit or perhaps sent in a little demo tape you know, to a radio station or, or what have you. They're, they're big changes. But every generation seems to have its own kind of set of rules of how you get noticed. So I don't necessarily blame them for making use of those opportunities. So in, insofar as that's exploitation, yeah, but, you know, there was also a time when bands would play free gigs in, in pubs to get so-called exposure and exposure doesn't pay the rent, right? So I think there's always been a trade in that kind of contract between the gatekeepers and people that want some kind of platform or, or some kind of stage. And, you know, having, having said all that, I don't necessarily mind that genre has discovered or produced or, you know, every so often a gem comes through. I think the big story here was Susan Boyle, right, who auditioned on, was it, was it Britain's Got Talent? And was literally laughed at by the audience because because she didn't look the way we think our opera singers or our, you know, I think she wanted to sue, sing in the Lane Page song and she didn't necessarily look like somebody that was born for the stage and she opens her voice and has the voice of an angel before you know it, the, the whole world falls in love with her and, and she has a hit album. I'm, I kind of like the fact that that happened. I, it's nice to know that the world can still surprise you. And had she tried to audition the old-fashioned way, if she had fronted up to a, a theatre producer and said, put me on stage, I've got a great voice, I think he or she would have laughed, just like the audience laughed. And I know that's a kind of extreme and atypical example, but sometimes we need to remember those exceptions to stop ourselves from making generalisations or assumptions. So that's, that's my response. Yeah, I like that uh, idea that every generation adapts to whatever the situation that they're placed in. 
Uh, that 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 re- actually really rings true with me. I hadn't thought about that before. That's great. Thanks. I also I think isn't there a story of Justin Bieber doing those little kind of acapella? You know, he started on YouTube. On YouTube, and who sees him? Usher. Mind you, he had I think some record producers in his family that yeah. knew how to get him you know, listen to and all that sort of thing. But that's a whole other story. I mean, certainly there's been the, the history of music and, and stardom and celebrity. There are so many lucky breaks, right? But I'm going back to this idea of content is king. I mean, audiences often aren't super stupid, right? Or, you know, we, we don't just, we do not give up our time, money and energy for anyone and everything. Uh, we, you know, most of the time we are quite I'm not sure if I agree with you on that. When I see the number of people anywhere you go on their phones watching absolute shit <laughs> on their Instagram feed or whatever it is. But anyway, that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think if they were to look over my shoulder and see me reading another article about something that they find terribly boring or watch me. I mean, I'm obsessed with my crossword app, right? If I was, I, I, uh, I think I could, I think I could, live without any anything else but if my crossword i need to pinch my if, if it was to crash overnight you know you'd hear me screaming from wherever you are in sydney <laughs> and so that's my that's my drink that's my happy time so it's it's quite subjective yeah fair enough can't help feeling that you know this whole area of self-branding it sort of encouraged people to to put up a veneer however authentic or not authentic and therefore to the people out there who are not you know vigilant right they can get easily sucked in you know i'm not talking about crossword puzzles here and i'm talking about people spending our money on cryptocurrencies with you know influencers so-called financial influencers and so forth right that's a, so I mean, yeah, uh, that's, a, that's fascinating but that's you know i mentioned earlier the absence of gatekeepers right and I think that what you're talking about there, which I totally agree with, and I, I absolutely share concerns and frustrations about the the trafficking of misinformation, the prevalence of trolls and bots, the seeding of outright lies, um, and the extent to which this perverts our meaningful engagement in public conversations. I'm absolutely with you there. But that's a completely... It's part of the the story of, you know, absence of gatekeepers. I also feel like, you know, that also speaks to another phenomenon that, you know, crises of legitimacy from big institutions. So people now take all the so-called experts with a grain of salt. It's like, well, you've all let us down. The banks let us down during the global financial crisis. The governments have let us down when we've seen scandals. The churches have let us down. It's one thing after another. And so... You know, what you're speaking to there, Lawrence, and, and the kind of, say, the trafficking of conspiracy theories and all the rest of it, I agree social media has been a hotbed and an incubator of that. But I think that's a that's another conversation. It's related, but it's and it's part of the media economy that we're, that we're discussing, you know, for this. But, you know, that's, that's, of course, that's alarming. And I think, if nothing else, what we saw happen over the last few years from interference in things like Brexit or US presidential elections or pandemic information. I, I think I think we're all in broad agreement that 
of course social media and, and influencers can traffic really dangerous ideas but that's taking this topic and stretching it out really far and and kind of looking at it very sort of holistically and yeah of course we'll um we could have that conversation and yeah absolutely some social media influencers have gained fame or notoriety moving into that space and exploiting the trust that their followers have in them to peddle what you and I would consider rubbish, lies. And it literally has been a matter of life and death, you know, for some conversations, for some topics. I mean, we know that. Going back to our fitness influencers, we know that many of them have got zero traditional qualifications to speak on these matters. Of course, that's consequential. And of course, we know that there are people out there literally selling information about cryptocurrencies that have zero uh, traditional qualification in financial advice. We know that. But our problem is that they and their followers might turn around and say, well, your ex so-called experts get us into trouble or your so-called experts create depression and recessions and, you know, all the rest of it. So there's also, that, that's our problem as people who want to actually uphold and defend expertise and credentials and qualifications. And that's part of this story. So, yeah, I have, I, I'm not going to solve that for you right now, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think that gives us more than enough. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. So, Susie, thank you uh, very much for your uh, time. As always, there will be uh, links in the show notes to uh, some of the things that we talked about and how you can read and learn more about Susie if you'd like. And I'd just like to thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Clear as Mud on your favourite podcast app and leave us a review, as well as asking you to check out the show notes for this episode at clear-as-mud.org where you'll find other examples of communication that is clear as mud. See you next time. This podcast is owned and created by Clear as Mud Productions. Continued listening to this podcast may result in uncontrollable laughter, eye-rolling, and expanded consciousness. Please see your doctor if pain persists.